0: Well, here we are, culturally, seemingly the end of the harsher phase of the pandemic, right? Um, What we're seeing is Australian cities coming out of lockdown, uh, hopefully for the last time. I mean, it's hard to believe, isn't it, that 18 months ago in March, uh, some of you might remember actually seeing it, the press conference where uh, Scott Morrison announced that Australia was going to get locked down, Uh, massive. Uh, you think about the, the last 18 months and just the volume of things that have changed and the amount of uncertainty that we've lived with over the last 18 months has been massive. No travel interstate, even travel within your state can lead to unforeseen circumstances where you end up locked down. Uh, we've worked from home, uh, we've done school from home, often at a moment's notice, um, what a wild 18 months it's been. It's, uh, it's hard to believe it in a lot of ways. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how history has recorded uh, in history, won't it? Uh, this whole pandemic, um, such significant change, uh, sometimes just in the click of the fingers, almost. Now, granted, there's been some changes that have been helpful um, in society over the last 18 months. But uh, the truth is it hasn't all been helpful I mean, one only needs to look at the statistics on domestic violence, mental health, to see that uh, the pandemic has had quite a detrimental effect on people. And you know, uh, part of why the pandemic has had an effect on people in a negative way is because uh, we love stability and certainty. That's all we love. Uh, We thrive on it. We, We just don't seem to do as well when things are changing and moving all the time, especially big things. Yeah, sure. We can accommodate changes, and we can be flexible. I I think one of the one of the words that's been used big time over the last eighteen months is we can pivot, can't we? Uh, And and I think the last eighteen months has shown that uh, that we can actually be pretty decent at adjusting to things. But at the end of the day, we still like things to be stable. At least some things to be stable. And so I just say to you this morning that if you feel like the last eighteen months. Uh, there's just been too much change for you and too much uncertainty and instability, um, I, you could be forgiven for that because there has been a lot of change and a lot of uncertainty and instability. I mean, even in the Project Church, we've experienced some of that. Um, you know, there was I read a newspaper article uh, just uh, a, a few days ago called uh, The Great Resignation and it's Microsoft research that 40% of people are going to resign for their positions at work in the next little while. I mean, there's more change coming. Um, I mean, people are choosing that change, but that just shows all the change that's going on. Um, and here's, here's the question, if stability and certainty is important for us, then where do you find it? If it's important for humanity, where do you actually find it? This is especially important in the context of fear. Uh, something, I think, which has loomed large over all of us over the last 18 months and perhaps might make a resurgence uh, in the coming months as Queensland looks to, uh, to open up. Um, you know, God made humanity to engage with threats and to exercise dominion over threats and bring them into order. But the bottom line is, if we go about this the wrong way, it easily becomes a vicious cycle that you can't actually get out of. You know, in some people, the desire to control and to get certainty even um, extends into uh, being diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder. They, they do things over and over in the hope that they'll have certainty about a particular fear or a particular threat. And the reality is, you know, we can joke about it, but we're all probably on the spectrum somewhere when it comes to that. You know, we, we are the ones that can obsessively check the news because we think if we know everything, we can be more certain about things. We are the ones who sometimes try to do everything correctly in the hope that life will play out like a maths formula. You don't want to get anything wrong because if you get something wrong it's not going to play out the way that you want. You know in some circles in the church even people are, are pedantic about not saying any negative words because there's some kind of understanding that our words connect into some kind of Christian karma and eventually that bad stuff's going to come back to us if we say anything negative. We work hard, we stay up late, we leave no stone unturned in an effort to control our future and make it go the way that we want it to go. Now most of the things that I've just mentioned aren't wrong in an objective sense. It's what we're trying to achieve with them that's wrong. So the problem isn't so much what we are doing, but what we are trying to achieve by what we do, and we're trying to get certainty, and the question is, how do you get certainty? It's a good question, and that's the question we're going to answer today. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to dive into John chapter 4, starting at verse 43. John chapter 4, verse 43, if you're new with us, we use the ESV version on Sunday mornings. So if you're looking for a version to use, you could use that one. John 4, starting at verse 43. John 4, 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. He's just spent two days with the Samaritans. Uh, We just uh, engaged with uh, the story of Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman. Uh, Verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, it seems to be the hometown that um, John is referring to, even though Jesus was born in Nazareth, um, something unusual happens. The, The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. So if you go back to John chapter 2 it says that Jesus performed a bunch of miracles and signs at the feast so it seems to me that what's happening here is Jesus ought not to be that welcome in Galilee but he actually was really welcome because they saw him do a bunch of tricks um, a little bit earlier Um, for they too had gone to the feast so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill now this official the Greek the New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek word behind it is like a a, a a palace official. So it's actually, Herod wasn't officially a king, but he was kind of called the king. So this is probably someone from Herod's direct court, okay? Uh, there's an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. Now, why come down? It's really straightforward. Caden um, was on... Uh, high ground sorry Canaan was on low ground I think and Capernaum was by the lake Um, and heal his son for he was at the point of death sorry I got that the wrong way around Canaan was on high ground and Capernaum was by the lake so this guy's gone to Jesus and said come down to my place and heal my son Um, for he was at the point of death 48 so Jesus said to him unless you see signs and wonders you will not believe The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from judah to galilee what we actually see here with this royal official is we see someone in a tight spot um, here's the context he's, he's got a son he's badly ill and is close to death and no doubt this official can do lots and lots of things but it appears that no one can do anything about his son so he's uh, in his hometown in capernaum he hears that jesus is back in cana it's a 32 kilometer walk He hears about this Jesus guy somehow, we're not told how. And he decides, I've just got to go and talk to Jesus. He can help me with my son. No one else can help me. I just have to go and ask him for help. And you know something, this is the right thing to do. (laughs) He's in a situation that's way outside of his control. A situation that's so deeply personal and meaningful for him. So what does he do? He goes and he asks Jesus for help. That's what he does. You know, this is what we find in the Gospels over and over and over and over again. People are in situations that they can't do anything about and what do you do? Well, you just have to get to Jesus. <laughs> That's all you have to do. If you can get to Jesus, you'll be okay. This is a story of the paralytic in uh, Mark chapter 2. The four friends, they just know that their paralytic friend, he can't get to Jesus on his own, but they know, they know, if you just get him to Jesus, he'll be okay. And so they carry him and they dig a hole through the roof and they lower him right down in front of Jesus. You might ask a question in the back of your mind. or well, what qualifies to be taken to Jesus? Well, anything that's outside of your control. Or well, what's outside of your control? Everything. Everything, everything is outside of your control. When you look at, we don't actually control much at all. Well, God's given us dominion. It's a derivative dominion. It's dependent upon God's dominion. It's not a standalone dominion that we just go into a place and we go, I can go and do this and that and the other thing. James talks about that in James 4. James says, don't be arrogant about it. You can't just go and do whatever you want. You should say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. God is the only one with stand-alone dominion. So we operate under him. So what do we run to him with? Well, everything. Absolutely everything. And I'd ask you this morning as we're just kicking in here, what's going on for you at the moment? What's out of hand? You know, there's stuff in your life you go, that is just out of hand. Someone ought to do something about that. What's out of hand for you? Are you running to Jesus? Is there something that you need to run to Jesus with this morning? You could could do no better than to do what this royal official did. Just got to get to Jesus. You feel that? I feel that often in my life. If I can just get to Jesus, I'll be okay. And that's not even guaranteeing that he's going to do what I want him to do. I just know that if I can just get to him, I'll be okay. Now, it's a strange kind of um, story in some ways because uh, what happens next is a bit full on. You know, here's this this poor official whose son is dying and he's desperate and he comes to Jesus and, and and he begs Jesus to heal him. And what does Jesus say? Well, he says something really inappropriate, doesn't he? He just says something really inappropriate, something very jarring. Have a look at it in verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. And if we were Jesus' PA, <laughs> his personal assistant, you'd just go, can, can you just come over here for a minute because you just stuffed that one up colossally. Right? This guy's son is dying. What are you doing? This man's under the pump. He's coming to you for help and and you tell him unless you see signs and wonders you won't believe it seems a bit harsh but let me help you out a little bit with it the um the greek word behind the second word that jesus says unless you is plural do you know what he's doing he's talking to everyone who's there and you know what he's doing is he's actually setting up two different approaches to responding to jesus it's going to be another one of the stories that John tells about there's some people who believe him and then there's some who don't. Uh, it's going to fit in with what Jesus has been on about with the Samaritan woman. Um, about It's not about the, the physical living water. It's about him being the living water. It's not about the, the scene. It's about the unseen. Now, let's ask the question, what is it about human nature that Jesus is getting at here unless you see signs and wonders you'll not believe what does he mean by that now it's important to note at this point in time Jesus and uh, and John the gospel writer they they don't have any problems with signs at all I mean this miracle is one of them if you go down to verse 54 the closing verse of this narrative is now this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to, to Galilee you know the, the people had the people in Galilee were welcoming him because of the signs that he did back in uh, John chapter 2. What, what What is Jesus getting at here? Well, I think what Jesus is getting at is uh, that there's something about the way that people, what people look for before they'll believe in Jesus. I think Jesus is really saying this is, there's a particular way that people approach him. They approach him in a shallow way based on what they can see. And so I want to give you uh, three different ways that this idea of unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe plays out. And I'll start with the one that I think is closest to the text and then throw a couple of others your way as well. What Jesus is saying is there's a kind of faith that, can, that is dependent on what can be seen. It's about living off what you see. We've seen this the whole way through John chapter 4 here. Uh, the living water, the, uh, the food that Jesus talks about, being born again back in John chapter 3, looking at Nicodemus, we get stuck in the physical and sometimes we can get addicted to the sensational. Now, I've been, I've been involved in uh, uh, Christian uh, organisations and churches and I've been in situations um, where the Holy Spirit has done some miraculous things, incredible things. And sometimes what will actually happen is there will be a little rush of miraculous things that the Spirit will actually do, um, and it's really inspiring and exciting. And one of the dynamics that goes on for people is when you have a little rush of uh, miraculous things, which is what I think the um, the Galileans here have noticed. Um, you just want it to be normal. You want it to be normal. You 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 want and expect it to become a normal part of life. And so like God's. Our own personal superhero. You ever felt like that? I just want to be able to pull him out of the pocket, out of your pocket and get him to do something miraculous whenever I I want it to happen. Now, let me add this. I wonder if there's any uh, who would join me in this. Um, We want to see at the Project Church as many miraculous things happen as God wants to do. Is anyone with me on that? I just, I go, let's, let's have an outbreak. It's, let's have a Spirit, Holy Spirit outbreak of miraculous things. People with, um, you yeah, know, we, we talked about this at the project a couple of years ago. You can look it up. We did a whole series on spiritual gifts out of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Uh, we, we're just up for as much as what the Spirit wants to do. But do you know something? If there was an outbreak in the project starting today that ran for the next six months... And there was a whole bunch of miraculous things to go on, which is what I long for. I'm still going to say to you that that's the, not the normal way that the Christian life works. We don't see miracles as being normative of the Christian life. We don't want to become miracle junkies. I don't think we're in any, in any uh, danger of doing that right at this point in time. Uh, God doing party tricks for us is not the essence of what it means to be Christian. I think that's um, it's probably the closest we can get to the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here, but let me tease out a few other uh bits and pieces uh, related to what Jesus might be saying in particular what he what it might actually mean for us. Here's the second one: you know you can want Jesus to do miraculous things to meet your needs to get things sorted out for you. You can come to Jesus this way you. He has stuff and you don't. He can do stuff and you can't. Your buy into Jesus is based on what he actually does for you. And if he does what you want, then it's smooth sailing for you. If he doesn't, you lose interest. Have you ever found that in your own life? This fixation on what you can see and Jesus playing things out the way that you want it to play out. You know, if you approach Jesus like this, then your relationship with him will ebb and flow with how your life rolls. You know, one of the questions that we've often asked in um, restoration groups is, what prayer unanswered would make you consider giving up your faith? What's that thing that's so incredibly close to you that you can see where if you didn't actually get it the way that you wanted it, you'd call time or you'd be tempted to call time? There's a... Um, Book by a fellow called William Backus called "The Hidden Rift with God." In this book, um, Bacchus talks about how many people have hidden anger with God because He and us differ about what is best for our lives, and it drives us away from Him. Are you happy with how God's making your life roll? <laughs> are you not happy? To think, are you closer to Jesus? When he's doing what you want? Now yeah, there's a little bit of that here. When was the last time God did something you didn't want? Or didn't do something you wanted? God's not a trained animal. doesn't exist to make anyone's life go the way that they want it to go do you hear that that is not the point of his existence to make your life go the way that you want it to go you know here's the bottom line i can say to you the way that god wants your life to go is always going to be the best way but it's not always going to be the way that you think it's the best way and here's the question can you handle that can you trust him with that? Or are you a are you fair-weather friend? It's rolling the way that you want. You're okay, but then you drift when it's not. How do you handle it when God doesn't play ball the way you want him to? You know, we love Psalm 23. I was awake in the middle of the night reciting it last night. What does it say in Psalm 23? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death he likes walking through valleys of the shadow of death it's like no one's going I'll have 20 please by Tuesday no one no one's asking for that but he's going to lead you through some of those we all love the story about the disciples in the boat with Jesus in the storm where he stills a storm but we don't like perhaps like reading the the verse at the start of that story where it says, Jesus said, let's go out on the lake. The heck was he doing? Taking him right into a storm. He knew exactly what he was doing. And be honest about it. Like if there's something going on, you know, is it possible? There's something going on that you don't, you don't want, you don't like and never ask for. The Lord's got you there. Is your faith deeper than just getting things the way that you want them to be? Here's a third one. kind of faith I think Jesus is talking about is um, a faith that kind of stands back and requires that Jesus prove himself. This, this one's never satisfied. You may have had someone come up to you and say, prove to me that God exists. And sometimes people take that challenge on. And before long, what you actually find is it's impossible. <laughs> because what they're really saying is, make me believe in God. And I, hear me out, you can't make anyone believe in God. In fact, you can't make anyone believe in anything. You know, because what's actually going on there with, prove to me that God exists, kind of make me believe in God is a denial of the very nature of belief. Because true belief isn't just about mentally agreeing with something, it's about a reliance upon the thing that you believe. You have to choose to put your trust in it. And you know what, at the end of the day, I don't think anyone can be forced to believe in anything. You know, you can wear people down over a really, really long period of time. But you know, you can go back to the concentration camps where the Jews were, and there was indoctrination and there were things that they said over and over and over again and you still saw in those concentration camps that people didn't cave in. They didn't give in. They held out. You know, if your trust in Jesus is dependent on him proving himself through physical things, he's going to need to keep doing physical things to stay in your good books. You know why? Because doubts are going to keep arising. I can do that, but can he do this one over here? Maybe I was just dreaming about this one over here when he did that thing. Maybe it was just a coincidence. Imagine trying to do friendship with someone who keeps expecting you to prove you're a good friend every week. you thought about that? You turn up on Monday, I know you were a good friend last week, but it doesn't count anymore, mate. it counts is this week. Do a few things. Prove yourself. What do all these approaches to Jesus have in common? Well, let me tell you what they have in common. Each of these approaches to Jesus have this in common. We stay in the centre and none of them require anything of us. Just stay at arm's length. Now for the kids, back in the day... This one's not for the kids. It's actually going to be for all the adults. So the kids are going, what the heck is that? Back in the day, there was a show called The Muppet Show. Does anyone remember The Muppet Show? Yeah. And um, in The the Muppet Show, uh, there were two Muppets. who sat in the balcony watching the show. And their names were? Uh, Okay. Old guys. Statler and Waldorf. They, They were opinionated and they heckled. That was kind of their deal. They were the... I mean, some people would say they were the first trolls, right? They just trolled people the whole time. They were hilarious. Uh, they weren't even officially part of the show, but they had opinions and criticisms about everything. And just, just because you asked, let's watch a little bit. You ready? Here we go. The question is, what is a phenomenon? The question is, who cares? (laughs) He's doing it. He's eating a tire. Amazing. Astounding. Boring. Uh, She just vanished. How did she do that? Probably like this. (gasps) That's probably how she did it. More, more, less, less. That's one of the reasons I always thought the Muppets were weird. Mm. Well, why is that? They think explosions are funny. yes. Uh, explosions aren't funny. <laughs> Although some of them are really quite droll. Say, Waldorf, I was wondering if maybe you... Could... Learn, I better get some new batteries for my hearing aid. Ha 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 ha! I pull them every time! <laughs> uh, what do you think? It's sitting home watching television? Mm Remember those guys? Some of you. Who knows that humans can be a bit like that sometimes, right? We just we sit in the balcony and we got all these opinions. We can troll people and we can make fun of things. We can do that even with Jesus. You know, we have a tendency to sit in the balcony at a distance, critique, and not have any part of it. Look at this from uh, Matthew 11. This is Jesus. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, "Look at him—a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Do you see what's going on here? Can't win. John the Baptist came one way, and they said, "Don't like that." And then Jesus comes along a different way. They go, "We don't like that either." It's just—it's like sitting in the balcony, critiquing and criticizing. Here's another way to put it uh, culturally. Um, We have a way as human beings to to sit on the edges and not have any skin in the game. You heard that saying? And just not have any skin in the game. The people that Jesus is talking to don't have any skin in the game. Skin in the game is like uh, you're invested in it. They're not invested in it. They're standing on the outside wanting Jesus to please them and do what they want without actually putting themselves out there. They want him to serve them. They want to sit in their comfy recliner chair and perform for them. That's what they want. They seem interested in Jesus, but they're actually not. Who are they interested in? Themselves. That's who they're interested in. No skin in the game. But what is, in the context of this story, what is skin in the game? How are we to understand it? Well, the official teaches us what skin in the game is. The official said to Jesus, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. You see what Jesus is up to? He's laying down a test for the man. It's very normal for Jesus to be personally present in miracles. He's usually up close and personal with people, but not this time. And I think this is a carefully crafted test. A carefully crafted test, because he knows he's got these people in the audience who don't have any skin in the game, who like to sit in the balcony and critique things. And the question really for this man is, will he be like those who need to see the physical evidence before he'll commit himself to Jesus or will he trust him and rely upon what Jesus says? And I want you to note here that this is not an invitation to a leap of faith. The man knew about Jesus. He knew the stories. That's why he had actually come. He didn't need a sign to know who Jesus was, but he had to work out whether he was going to have some skin in the game or whether he was going to stand on the outside and critique. So what does he do? He proves he's not in the category of people who stand on the outside and critique. You know, the way the the NIV translate that last sentence is, the man took Jesus at his word. Do you know what he did? The man stepped out of the balcony. That's what he did. He stepped out of the centre... Where he expected Jesus to come and serve his every whim and wish. And you know what he stepped into? An uncontrolled space. Because he was 32 kilometres from home. This is a richly relational movement by this man. He trusts in the person of Jesus, he can't see the result, he doesn't have that option. He won't even see whether it was true or not for a while, but he believes Jesus and he takes him at his word and he goes on his way. It's a massive. So many of us hold out on Jesus because we're afraid he's going to let us down. We think he won't make our lives go the way that we want them to go or that he might ask us to do something that we don't want to do. When we do that, We're like Statler and Waldorf sitting in the balcony. That's what we are. No skin in the game, no personal buy-in, just opinion and critique, keeping Jesus at arm's length. People did this to Jesus? They still do. (laughs) And sometimes we have to be honest and say, we can be like it in the church sometimes, can't we? As though the church is a service delivery organisation that you can just sit in your armchair and wait for someone, to, the waiter to come along and give you what you want. That's not what the church is. It isn't what the church is. You're not meant to be in the church and not have skin in the game in the church. Is it? It's a big ticket item. You can't do relationship with anyone at arm's length. If you, if you want to sit in the balcony, in a recliner chair, relationally with Jesus or with anyone else, it's just not going to work because all relationships require that you leave the security and comfort of the balcony and get some skin in the game. You have to put yourself in a position where you can actually be hurt and I'll tell you something, you will get hurt sometimes. And you notice what this man does? (laughs) Whatever Jesus says, is just enough for him. Doesn't ask for another sign. It's like, yeah, I know that's going to be true. It's enough for him. And this is is what I want you to notice. Notice what the man doesn't do. Because taking someone at their word tells you something about the nature of someone's trust. Now think about it, if you're a, uh, if you're a boss you're a, or a parent. Now, kids love to ask why. And it's good to give answers to the question why. But any parent will tell you that it gets to times with their kids where asking why isn't just about getting more information, it's about the fact that they don't trust you anymore and they actually trust themselves. And unless you can come up with a good enough reason for why you think it's a good thing to do, they're not going to go with it. You know, it can happen for bosses as well. You know, before long, the need to know why isn't about what's going on. It's about whether you agree with what's going on. It's about whether you trust. Take the instructions in the Garden of Eden. That's the instruction in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right. Now, if the response to that is, sure, no worries. God, uh, you're really good. You're a good father. I can leave that with you. What does that tell you about the nature of the relationship between uh, a person and God? I think it says something really special about the relationship uh, when we can just take God at His word. And this is what the man does with Jesus. He knows who Jesus is, he knows He has His good reasons, and He takes His word for it. When it comes to art, to what God says, do you ask why too much? Is the time lapse between knowing what God wants you to do and you doing it short? Should be, shouldn't it? When you read the Bible, you know, like this is, this is big time being something that God's been doing in me. Where um, I just want to ask why less. And there's nothing wrong with asking why. I, ask, I have asked lots of whys over the years. And I love to think deeply about things. But you know, if there's a really really good father who really really loves their kid and the kid knows that the dad's trustworthy and good the kid just doesn't need to know why that often right you with me you just go oh really you think that'd be a good thing I must be just go and do it and when you read your bible when you when you're operating during the day maybe the spirit brings a scripture to mind do you do you take some time to, to think about it, even though you know really clearly what the Lord wants you to do? Or do you just go, well, the Lord, Lord says it's a good thing to do and He's good, so we'll just go and do it. I think many of you do do that. We, we just want to do that more, right? Is anyone with me on that? just want to do that more. We just want to trust Him. If He says something good to do, we'll just get about doing it. But, you know it's probably you and I are probably like this official in that there there probably is a very very dear thing to you and it's very very hard for you to take Jesus at his word in that one and that's the challenge I mean what, what are we talking about here we're talking about an official his son is dying as far as he knows, he could be dead by the time he gets home. What's what's that really dear thing to you that you find difficult to just take Jesus at his word on? Because <laughs> Jesus wants to help you to get there, right? And just be able to rely upon him. Here's where we finish. It's a great end. To the story, isn't it? Because what we actually see is we don't just see one miracle. You might go, "Oh, it's a miracle. The kids, kids better." (laughs) You know, we see there uh, as as he's on his way home the next day, um, his servants meet him and they tell him that his son is getting better. He goes, "Oh, what time? Seventh hour. What time is that? One p.m." And he thinks back and he goes, "That's exactly when Jesus said it would be okay." amazing amazing miracle the timing was perfect he trusted Jesus's words without seeing a sign and then he got the confirmation afterwards it was all he and his family needed who knows it's like that in your life Jesus doesn't turn up and give you all the confirmation and all the signs at the start he says trust me and then I'm going to come through He does it all the time. And you might go, it's really frustrating. But it's actually really good. It's really good for you. He knows exactly how we roll. You know, call him Moses in Exodus 3. Moses is kind of going, how do I know that you're going to do all this stuff that you said? And God goes, well, when you've done it all, you're going to come back and worship me on this mountain. Thanks. (laughs) That didn't help at all. You get to the... um, The story of the Israelites, after they've come out of the the promised land, they've gone through the Red Sea and they get out in the middle of the wilderness and all of a sudden, whoops, like we don't have any food. So they grumble and complain and God says, I'm going to give you manna. But what does he do for almost all of the week? He only gives enough manna for the next day. And there's Tupperware parties going on, right? Because people have worked out, we've got to store this stuff because we need enough for tomorrow, And it breeds worms and it stinks and that to throw it out. What what is what on earth is God up to? God is up to wanting to be really close to you. And He's up to wanting to stir up in you ongoing, day by day, minute by minute, faith. Trust in Him. Personal trust in Him. That's how it rolls. I don't know how many times I I need to learn it but you just get up to something you go well this isn't working so trust do the last thing God told you to do and trust him and wait that's what you need to do you don't get the evidence before the faith because if the evidence comes before the faith the faith is not necessary do you hear that just don't get it so if you're in a situation in your life at the moment you go God show me the money it's like no he wants your trust and he wants your faith first and then he'll do what's good and right after that you can trust him with that why because what means the most to him what he values most is your trust in him in that context so maybe the worship team can come up I started this morning talking about certainty and I want to finish by referring to it. What does this story have to do with certainty? Well, I'll tell you this. When you look at the world that we live in, things change and nothing is certain. And if you go looking for certainty in things that you can see, in physical things, you won't find it you just won't find it it doesn't exist you don't have control anything that you see around the place can change at a moment's notice but it's not to say that certainty doesn't exist it just doesn't exist in things that you can see and manipulate if you want certainty You need to know this. There's one who oversees all, who cares for you, who will see to it that every single thing ends well for you. Certainty is not found in situations of things that you can see. Certainty is found in a person. So you have to step out of the balcony and enter the uncontrolled space and trust in the person... And ironically, when you get into that uncontrolled space, you'll get the certainty that you're looking for. If you're not a Christian here today and you're looking for a slam dunk argument for Jesus, a watertight evidence for Christianity, you're going to be disappointed. There's lots of evidence. (laughs) But it won't get you over the line. Why won't it get you over the line? Because the essence of what Christianity is is not an intellectual system. It's actually a person. It's the person of Jesus and the only way that you actually get in is through trust in that person and what he's done on the cross for you. The certainty you want, the certainty that I want, is found in a person. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray. God, you, uh, you are so patient with us. We, uh, we go looking for security and stability in so many different places where it doesn't exist. And over and over and over in your word, you say, I am the refuge. I am the rock. I am the fortress. Come to me and be safe. So God, would you uh, lift our eyes up to see you? God, would you... Would you just be so gracious and merciful to come close to those who doubt and those who struggle where, where trust is hard, it's hard to do. God, there are, there are situations going on for people in this room where it's really hard for them to trust in you. And even this morning, God, they're probably even in their hearts just going, I really want to but I just don't know how to, like the The Father who came to you, Jesus, and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So, God, I pray that uh, in every heart this morning that you would be at work, Jesus, by your Spirit, helping people to trust in you. Jesus, you know I need that so much from you. I so need your help with that. God, we don't want to be people who treat you like someone who does party tricks. We want to be people who uh, when you say something, we just go, yeah. I believe you. Rest on that. I'll lean on that. Trust in it. Trust in you.